God's presence, God's people, God's purpose, God's plan. These have always been the essential ingredients of the church. We find a recording of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. That letter was the first of a two-part work, the second being the Book of Acts. In this letter, Luke recalls Jesus' ascension and commission, the spread of the Gospels, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the early church. In the past, God's presence was with His people in one place at one time. But after God outpoured His promised Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the power to do incredible things filled those who would receive it and overflowed to those around them. With this new Holy Spirit power, the church began to explode, stirring among thousands as the message grew and spread, unhindered. The mission of the church has been made clear by Jesus Himself. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now, more than 2,000 years later, God's presence is still being unleashed among God's people, and we are part of God's continued purpose and God's continued plan as the Holy Spirit moves in and through us. Well, good morning. It is go so good to see you and your smiling faces here in the room. Those of you joining us online and, <clears throat> excuse me, worshiping with us and attending online, uh, so glad that you're with us. Friday night, a little, little, uh, little freebie here for you. Friday night, I went to the demolition derby at the fair and was sitting next to a man uh, who goes to our church. And after a while, he leaned over to me and said, this is going longer than one of your sermons. <laughs> so I hope this is not a, a demolition derby and who knows how long it will go last night. Okay, anyway. So it is good to have you here. Um, I want to, before we get in, we're in this series in the book of Acts throughout the summer and into, well, actually all the way through September. And uh, from here on out, we're going to have to fast forward. We're going to skip chapter after chapter after chapter. So I hope that you're reading and studying it on your own. But before I get into that, uh, I've, I've got a door uh, back here behind me, and I'm using this kind of as a, as a visual illustration, a door with a sign, restricted area, authorized personnel only. Anytime I see a sign like this, I want to go in the door. I mean, I want to know what's back there, what are they doing, why, why don't I get to be a part of that? But I'm using this door as an illustration uh, to kind of talk about or to, to uh, illustrate the relationship that God has with his people. Uh, because there was a time when God decided to enter into a covenant with some people in order to bring about salvation to the world. And he started with a man, a guy named Abraham, and, uh, and he gave a sign uh, about this covenant. He said, part of this covenant, I will be your God, you'll be my people. You're going to be a great nation. There's going to be incredible benefits and blessings you're going to receive from being in this covenant. But there are some, there are some restrictions, there's, there's some, some authorized stuff, and for for Abraham, it was like the sign of this covenant is, is circumcision. Now, this sermon's not about circumcision, but there's a whole lot of actually a beautiful picture of that with what God had with his people. And on and on it goes, and then eventually Jacob comes. He has 12 sons and becomes Israel and the 12 tribes. And then eventually Moses would come and bring the law. And part of this being in the covenant was not just the circumcision, but following the law of Moses. And so there was this kind of this restricted area for those who were in the covenant. That God says, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I have chosen you. Now, this is kind of important. Israel was chosen not because they were special. Israel was special because they were chosen. There's a difference there. Because if it was about them, 
then God's like the accessory. But it was about God and his plan, and they were the ones that God was going to use. They were special because they were chosen. And God says, I'm going to choose you for my purposes, and I'm going to bless you in order to be a blessing. I'm going to give you a gift so that you can gift the whole world. You know, I'm going to make you, in this restricted covenant, a light unto the Gentiles. But what happened over time is that there became the kind of this, this thought, this process, this, this mindset that we're God, God's people, and God's our God, and, and there's this exclusivity, this elite way to it, and it's kind of an us and them. And it got to this point where it was like, he's our God, not yours. And so rather than just saying, yeah, there's, there's restrictions around this covenant, they got to this point where it was more like they replaced this restricted area authorized personnel with, with more of a, a keep out, us in them, as opposed to what God had said, it's us for them. I'm going to bless you so you can bless them. And what's interesting is that this attitude of, of keep out the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the non-Jews, went even further. And, and then it was like with the Samaritans, these people who, who were half Jewish and half not Jewish, and, and, and they were like kept at an arm's length, you keep out. And then it went even further with like the Pharisees, the law-abiding Jewish people, even the Jews with the other Jews. It's like, well, yeah, you're part of our family, but, but keep out. Keep away. And then Jesus comes along. And he makes these statements. And he brings these invitations and these commands that go back to God's original plan. When he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Remember that you're blessed in order to be a blessing. You are going to be my people so that you can be a light to the Gentiles. It's us for them. And in Acts chapter 1, he would say, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, yes, and Judea, yes, Israel, and Samaria, half Jewish, half not, and to all the nations, to the ends of the earth, for everybody. And this began to happen. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and it's not just for the Pharisees, and it's just, not just for the priests. It's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel where it says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and your daughters, not just men, but your, your men and your women. And he pours it out on the, on, the, on the Jewish folks. And then it goes a step further in Acts chapter 8, when in Samaria, they recognize that these Samaritans, these half Jewish, half non-Jewish, they're kind of on the outskirts, they receive the Holy Spirit as well. And then in Acts chapter 10, where Peter has his vision and, and the, the sheet and Cornelius, and he goes to visit Cornelius in Caesarea, and the Holy Spirit pours out on these. They're not even Samaritans. They're Gentiles. And it seems that while they've had this us and them attitude, all along God says, no, 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 it's not about keep out. What we begin to see is he hangs a different sign on the door, says, hey, this is an open house. This is what I had in mind all along. I chose you so that we could open this up for everybody. And then we began to see this happening in the book of Acts. And it starts spreading. And if you've been with us in this series or you've been studying Acts, you know because of the persecution, what started with the stoning of Stephen, what happened with Saul in his persecution is that the Jewish people began to, to, to be dispersed. They began to run, to flee. But the beautiful thing is, as they went, they took the message of Jesus, what we just sang about, the powerful name of Jesus. They took the message of Jesus with them. And so other people began to be followers of Jesus. 
And it wasn't just the Jewish people. Then something happened. It says that there were some men from, from Cyprus and Cyrene. That's going to be important later on. Some men from Cyprus and Cyrene that went to a place called Antioch. This was outside of Jerusalem. This was outside of Israel. This was outside of Samaria. This was way up to the north. And they not only began to talk to, about Jesus to the Jewish folks, but they began to talk about Jesus to the Greeks. And the Greeks began to believe this and they began to follow it. And it was in Antioch where the followers of the way, the followers of Jesus, were first called Christians. And it's this big group. And there becomes more Greek followers of Jesus than Jewish followers. And word of this gets back to Jerusalem, kind of the mothership, you know, the, the center of the church. Hey, do you know what's going on in Antioch? There's all these followers of Jesus, which is good, but they're Greeks. They said, we need to send someone to check this out. So they send Barnabas up to go check this out. Barnabas goes and sees how the grace of God has been poured out on these people, and he's just rejoicing, and he's helping them learn and grow, and he's discipling them, and he's teaching them. And also, I think he realizes, this is beyond me. I can't handle this on my own. Because it was continuing to, to spread, in Acts chapter 12, it says this, the word of God continued to increase and spread. He's like a little bit overwhelmed with all these followers of Jesus. They don't know anything, especially the Greeks. They don't have the, the background of, of, the, uh, of the Old Testament, the Torah. So he goes up to Tarsus, where Saul has gone back home. And Saul's probably learning and growing and teaching there. And he says, Saul, I need you to help me. And so he brings Saul back to Antioch. And Barnabas and Saul spend an entire year in Antioch teaching and preaching, discipling, helping these followers of Jesus to grow and to understand what it means to live in the grace of God. And that's where we pick up in our story today. Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 13 and 14. We're going to go on a bit of a journey. And, and, um, and last night the journey got long. <laughs> I, I'm working on paring things down even as I speak. Um, Acts chapter 13 and 14, and, and my hope is this, is that one, you'll, you'll increase your understanding of the journey and in the, in the, in the history of the church and his story of the church. Two, that you'll have a greater love for God's word, but most importantly, that you will respond in the goodness and the grace of Jesus, more in love with him, worshiping him more, more grateful for him, more surrendered and submitted to him to have the life he's called and created us to live. So, ready? Acts 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Five key leaders in the church in Antioch that are listed. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, uh, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, before we go any further here, I've mentioned this before, very often in the Bible, when there are names that are listed, two, three, four, in this case, five names, they're usually not listed randomly, not listed alphabetically. Most often there is implied that there's a, a, almost a ranking of, of influence, of, of prominence, of, of leadership. And if that's the case, it starts off with Barnabas. Of course, he was sent from Jerusalem. He's like the leader. He's like the, the senior leader. He's like the, the pastor or, or whatever of this group. And then there are these other men. And then the fifth one, the last one, and maybe in this case kind of the least, is this guy named Saul. Saul, whom some of them are still trying to figure out, is he legit? Saul, who is not from Jerusalem. Saul, who Jerusalem didn't send. Saul, who was up in Tarsus, that Barnabas went and said, hey, I need some help. Can you come and help me? And so you have this list, and maybe in, in, this, in this setting, the most influential, prominent one was Barnabas, and of these five leaders, the least was Saul. Now, I just want to, for a minute, 
Walk us through these five guys. So Barnabas, Barnabas, some of you know, Barnabas was not his given name. His given name was Joseph. Barnabas was a nickname that the disciples gave to him. Bar means son of. So when you see Bartholomew or Bartimaeus or, you know, Simon Bar-Jonah, Bar means son of. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And you just think, what was this guy like to have disciples say, you know what, we're not going to call you Joe anymore. From now on, we're referring to you as the son of encouragement. Now, Barnabas is from, from Cyprus. It's an island out in the Mediterranean. We'll get to that in a minute. He's from Cyprus. Barnabas has a sister named Mary. Whichever Mary you're thinking of right now, it's not that one. There are a ton of Marys in the New Testament. This is the other one. This is like Mary number six. He's got this uh, sister named Mary. She lives in Jerusalem, and she has a house in Jerusalem, apparently a pretty good-sized house, because if you were here last week when Pastor Scott took us through chapter 12, when Peter was uh, escaped from prison, he goes to the house where the church was meeting and praying in the home of Mary. So that's his sister. Mary has a son who is Barnabas' nephew. His name is John, a different John, also called Mark, or sometimes called John Mark. All right. Are we still with me? Because we got a long way to go. Okay, all right. So you got Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And then you've got this guy, Simeon, also called Niger, who's probably Latin and Roman and possibly from, from Africa. Every scholar that I read, every New Testament uh, um, commentary that I read, believed that, that Simeon was probably from Africa. They, they believed that Simeon was black. And here's an interesting thing. Most of them think that Simeon has been in this story earlier. If you remember when Jesus was, being, was going to be crucified, he carries his cross until he's so weak physically, he falls, drops a cross, and in, I think it's Mark and Luke's gospel, they go to a man named Simon of Cyrene, whose kids are Alec, Alexander and Rufus. Any of you remember that? And Simon of Cyrene carries the cross for Jesus. Most scholars believe this is this man that he was the one that carried the cross of Jesus to Calvary, which would give him like some, some authority, I, I suppose. I mean, he was a part of that story. And then you've got this guy named Lucius. Lucius is a Greek. He is from Cyrene. We know that for sure. And uh, Cyrene, which is in North Africa. And when it says that there were men from Cyprus and Cyrene that went to Antioch, it's highly likely, most probable, that Lucius was one of the founders of the church in Antioch. So the fact that, and he's Greek, which makes sense. They begin telling the Greek people about Jesus. Many of the Greek followers of Jesus would probably say, you know, I first heard about it from Lucius. He's like my spiritual father. He's one that led me to the Lord. And then a name that we rarely ever talk about is Menaean. Interesting guy, this Menaean, probably aristocrat from, from kind of the upper echelon, may have been a Sadducee, a Hellenistic Jew anyway, and it says that he, he was raised with, with Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. Some of your translations may say he was the foster brother of Herod Antipas, which means that Herod the Great has these four sons. One of them is Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. And this Menaean is brought up with him, maybe raised in the same house with him, good friends with him. We're not sure. But look at the interesting contrast. Herod the great dies. But then Herod Antipas, his life takes a, a turn for the worse. I mean, he's the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. 
He's the one that was instrumental in the death of Jesus. And it could be that Manan, like his foster brother, is afraid of Herod, and maybe that's the reason he's in Antioch. Maybe he's running for his life, but he's a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. He's a follower of Jesus. And then, of course, we have Saul. Saul was born in Tarsus somewhere early in his life. He moves to Jerusalem with his parents. He's raised up under Gamaliel, which was like the, the, the Yoda of the rabbis. I mean, just amazing. He is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Uh, he's a, you know, like a terrorist. He's a, the torturer of the, the followers of Jesus. And then he's converted on the road to Damascus. We looked at that several weeks ago. So you have these five leaders of this growing church in Antioch. What's interesting to me is how little they have in common. In fact, how many differences they actually have. There are ethnic differences, there are cultural differences, there are geographical differences, there are historical differences, a lot of differences, and yet these five very different, very unique, very diversified individuals are working together. And this is the beauty of this picture, is that Jesus produces unity from, from the, the differences, uh, amidst the differences. So often, we focus on our differences instead of focusing on Jesus. These five guys, what they have in common is Jesus Christ. And that becomes their focus. I, like it says in Philippians 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, then he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. These five guys have a lot from being united in Christ. And they are like-minded, you know, the same in love, being one in spirit and purpose. And they're doing incredible stuff. Okay, now listen. That's verse 1. we got a long way to go. Still with me? Verse 2. All right. Verse 2 and 3. While they, these five men, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Notice the order. Barnabas and Saul. Remember what we talked about, the order. That's significant. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. We don't know what they're sending them off to. It's kind of like when God says to Abraham, come and I'll take you to where I'll show you. And, you know, that's it. Where are you going? I'll show you. How long are you going to be there? You'll know. What are you going to do? I'll let you know. They don't get, none of the details are given in this at all. But what we have here is the very first time that the followers of Jesus send anyone on a missionary journey. Up to this point, the spread of the, the, spread of the gospel, while it is uh, the fruit of the sovereign hand of our omnipotent God, it happens almost serendipitously. As they go, they talk about Jesus. This is the first time there's a, an organized, coordinated, intentional um, effort with the express purpose of taking this message to people outside of Israel. Taking this message of Jesus saying, this is an open house for you too. And to send them off to be able to be a part of this kingdom. So, the two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. They were sent and they went. What a picture. Holy Spirit sends them, they don't question it, they go. There's just this obedience. And what we will see is that it's an obedience to opportunity and to danger. 
It's an obedience of doing what the Holy Spirit has called them to. And there's going to be opportunities to share this good news of the gospel of Jesus. And it's going to change uh, lives and it's going to change eternities. And it's going to change cities and cultures as we will see. It's going to make incredible differences for eternity. But there's also going to be some danger as well. They will risk their very lives for this. But they continue to be obedient. Uh, Vincent Van Gogh, I don't quote him very often, but, but Van Gogh said, the fishermen know that the sea is dangerous and the storm terrible, but they have never found these dangers sufficient reason for remaining ashore. Barnabas and Saul know that there are dangers awaiting them, but they don't find those dangers sufficient reason to be disobedient to the calling of the Holy Spirit. And so they embark on this journey. And what I want to do is I want to just take us on this journey, through this first missionary journey of, of Saul. He will end up taking three missionary journeys. This is the first one. And in order to do this, I'm, I'm going to just kind of basically walk us through summarizing um, Acts 13 and 14. You can follow along, you can read it on your own later, or right now if you're bored with my sermon, that's fine as well. But uh, for that, we're going to go to the map. The map, the map, the map, the map. I'm the map. All right. You got to bring some door the Explorer into church sometimes. All right. So here's the deal. <clears throat> Tarsus is where Saul is from. Antioch is where Barnabas is. They took the offering down to Jerusalem. Looked at that last week. When they came back, they brought Barnabas's nephew with them. So John Mark is with them. Now they leave Antioch, they go down to Seleucia, and they take a boat and they sail out here to Cyprus, the island where Barnabas is from. It makes perfect sense that Barnabas would want to go and spread the news of Jesus Christ to his homeland, to his people, to the, the places where he grew up. So they go to Cyprus and they go into the synagogue at Salamis. This is a pattern you see repeated when they go into a new city. The first place they go is to the synagogue. And there's some reason for that. One is because the gospel was sent first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. But there's always already a foundation. If they can take Jewish people who understand the Torah and talk about how all the law and prophets points to and is fulfilled in Jesus, that's some, some, some good, a, a good place to start. In addition to that, if they just come into the town talking about this Jesus that no one's ever heard of, they might be like, People thinking they're talking about a brand new God, but if they attach themselves and are identified with the Hebrew God, Yahweh, then people say, okay, well, we've heard of that. It's just this, this Jesus is the son of him. So they go to the synagogue and they preach and teach there. And then it, the line here shows them going right over here to Paphos. It says they went throughout Cyprus. Barnabas knows this island like the back of his hand. He grew up here. He knows the back roads. He knows all the towns. He knows a lot of people. They go through and then they get to Paphos. Paphos is on the other side. In Greek mythology, Paphos is where Aphrodite was born, the goddess of love, out of sea foam. So there's probably a lot of actually immorality here. And they encounter this guy whose name is Bar-Jesus. What does the name Bar mean? Son of. So he's a sorcerer and a, mag a magician, and he's really resisting them. He's making things difficult for them. His name is Bar-Jesus. And I love this because Paul calls him the son of the devil. You know, you're Bar-Diablo, not Bar-Jesus. says, you're the son of the devil, and because you're pushing up against this and spreading all these lies and rumors, you're going to go blind for a while. Paul knows what this is all about. He's experienced that. The governor there, the proconsul, is a guy named uh, uh, um, uh, Paulus, uh, Sergius Paulus. 
And Sergius Paulus is close with this Bar Jesus guy, sees it, he goes blind, he's like, whoa, these guys are legit. And he becomes a follower of Jesus. He's like the governor. Something else happens at this point is that Luke begins to refer to Saul as Paul. We'll come back to that. So the spread of the gospel is happening on the island of Cyprus. They catch a boat and they go up here to Perga. Perga is in the area called Pamphylia. Pamphylia is best known in those days as kind of the harbor for pirates. Arr, you know, there's all these pirates there. They go to, to, to Perga and something interesting happens here. John Mark decides to go back home to Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of speculation of why. Could it be that Saul, Paul becomes more prominent than Barnabas, and he's like, hey, I signed on to work with Uncle Barney, and he's like got the second seat here. That could have been it. It could be that he got freaked out by this whole pirates and magicians and sorcerers and all. He's like, this is way out of my zone. It could have been him being raised Jewish that the whole Gentile thing, that was just, that was like just too much for him. He wasn't ready. He knew it here, but just couldn't deal with it. Could be that he was scared. Could be that he was homesick. He's younger. But he leaves, and it will become a point, a big point of contention later. Because Paul says, man, he deserted us. He left us hanging. He left us in the lurch. I mean, we cannot count on him. So Paul and Barnabas go up to Antioch. Remember, there's two Antiochs. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, I think. So the, the Syrian Antioch and then the Pisidian Antioch. Up in this Antioch. And if you read Galatians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, you see that that Paul comes up here because he's sick. Many people believe that he contracted um, malaria down in these lowlands, and so he went up to the higher elevations to get better. He comes into Antioch. He's recuperating up in this region. And then he and, and Barnabas go to church on the Sabbath. They go to the synagogue. And they, you know, in the synagogue, they read the prophets, they read the law, and then they see the two new guys. And they said, hey, do you guys have a word for us? Paul gets up calms them all down, and he preaches a sermon. It's the first recorded sermon, the longest recorded sermon that we have from Paul, which I think is kind of an outline for every other sermon that he would probably preach in synagogues. It was just like, this is what he does. You can read that on your own. But he preaches this sermon, and at the end of it, they're all like, you got to come back next week. My guess is he was a shorter preacher than the normal preacher. <laughs> so you got to come back next week. We want you back here. And, and some of, the, some of the, the Gentiles and the Greeks, they're like, we don't want to wait till next week. We want to hear more about it now. And so they're going through it. The next Sabbath, it says the whole city comes out. I mean, there's this massive crowd, and there's these people that are following Jesus now, and they're putting their trust and faith in him. But some of the Jewish people become very, very jealous, especially the Jewish leaders. And so they try to, try to kind of push back against him. And, and Paul says, listen, fine. If you don't find yourself worthy for the eternity of the kingdom of God, fine. We're going to go to the Gentiles. These Jewish leaders that are so upset, they start finding prominent women, probably women who had, like, were very sensitive or, or sympathetic towards the cause of Christ. And they turn these prominent women against Paul and Barnabas. And the prominent women probably go and talk to their husbands and turn their husbands against Paul and Barnabas. And so they want them out of the region. And Paul and Barnabas do this, kind of this dramatic departure. They take their sandals off, and, and then they, they shake the dust off their sandals. It was a, kind of a very dramatic way of saying, we're breaking up. You know, I part with thee, that kind of thing. So, so away they go. That's the end of chapter 13. We're getting somewhere now. Chapter 14, they end up in a place called Iconium. Iconium. 
And here they come in again. They go into the synagogue. They're preaching the message of Jesus. Tons of Jews and Gentiles become followers after Jesus. It's an amazing thing. But then there are some, again, that are like, we're not not so good with this. And there's a major division. But the impact of the gospel still makes a difference. The impact of Paul makes a difference. The message of Jesus still makes a difference. And the reality is, it seems that Paul's appearance made an impression as well. Now, this isn't biblical, but it is from um, an apocryphal writing, a, a early second century writing called the Apostle of Paul. There's talk about things that happened. This isn't in the Bible, but it is an apocryphal book. We don't know what the disciples looked like. We don't, I mean, we know what the flannel graph looked like growing up in Sunday school and some artist depictions and such. But in this, this document, called the Acts of Paul, there's this guy, um, his name is um, Onesiphorus, or Onesiphorus, I think is his name, and he actually saw Paul, and this is what's recorded. I'm not making this up, okay? Onesiphorus, a resident of Iconium, says this, and he saw Paul approaching a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and a nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness. <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean, he's not just another pretty face in the crowd. I mean, he is eye candy. You know, <laughs> unibrow, hooked nose, bow-legged, bald-headed, short guy. I think Danny DeVito. In fact, here's a picture I think of. <laughs> That's probably the Apostle Paul. Now, I hope I didn't just destroy your view of the Apostle Paul. That was this, this idea that here's this guy, is Apostle Paul, but he's powerful. Okay, back to the movie. The math, the math, the math, the math. All right. So they're in Iconium. Well, these people that are dividing the city, that are trying to get these guys out of there, they set up a plan to actually kill Paul and Barnabas. They're going to stone them. So word of this leaks out. Paul and Barnabas says, we're out of here. And so they go south to this little town called Lystra. Lystra is one of the places that Paul will visit on all three of his missionary journeys. All three of them. We don't know a lot about Lystra, but he comes back to this again and again and again. In Lystra, there's a great deal of um, mythological uh, god and goddess worship. He comes into town, and there's a man who's been crippled since birth. This is very much a reflection of another miracle that happened when Peter goes into the temple, and the man who's been crippled from birth, Pastor Kip preached about this, Jumping Jack Flash, you may remember that whole thing. Very similar miracle. He sees this man who's been crippled since birth, and he says, get up and walk, and he does. And all the people see this, and they're like, These guys, and this is what they come to the conclusion, the gods have visited us in human form. This is Zeus and Hermes. And they're all excited about the gods. And they said, we got to worship these guys. They're they're our gods. And they're going about, in fact, the priest of Zeus goes out, gets a bull to bring it into sacrifice to these guys. And they're all going on. Paul and Barnabas don't know why they're so excited because they don't speak the language, the Lyconian language. They don't speak this language, which it never struck the people of Lystra that gods don't know their language. But regardless, this is all happening. And, and then when all of a sudden it strikes, Paul and Barnabas are like, wait, 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 no. And they tear their clothes like, no, 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 don't, don't kill the bull. Leave the bull. Don't worship us. We're just humans like you. We're, we're not gods. Even at that, they couldn't get them to stop. Meanwhile, Some of these Jewish people from Iconium and Antioch who were really against Paul and Barnabas, they hear that they're down in Lystra. 
they send some people down to Lystra to rile up the crowd against Paul and Barnabas. And it works. This is what it's like to be a pastor. <laughs> One week they love you, the next week they fire you. One week in here, they're worshiping him. The next, they want to kill him. So what happens is they actually throw stones at Paul until he's dead or at least appears to be dead. And they're like, oh, we went too far. We got to get rid of the body. They drag his body out of town and leave him. End of the story, some of the followers of Jesus go out crying, no doubt. And then Paul gets up and says, I'm not dead, it's merely a flesh wound. And he goes back into town. He gets up and he walks back into town. Now here's a cool thing about what happens in Lystra. Is that the gospel goes forward and there are these followers of Jesus. And one is this old grandmotherly type. Her name is Lois. She becomes a follower after Jesus. And her daughter is a woman named Eunice. She becomes a follower after Jesus. She has a Greek husband. And they have a young son named Timothy, who will become a major player in this story later. But it happens here in Lystra. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul goes through all of these hardships he's experienced in ministry. He says, I've been shipwrecked, I've 39 lashes, been beaten with rods. He says, one time I was stoned. That happens at Lystra. So they leave and they go to Derby down here to Derby, and again, they proclaim. I mean, here's Paul. I mean, he, he just, he's probably still bruised and bloody and scarred up. He goes to, to Derby. He continues to preach the gospel, and many Jewish and Gentiles uh, became followers of Jesus. One little side note. I talked about this early on. In a later um, missionary journey, uh, we'll look at this in three weeks, he goes to Ephesus. Later, he'll write a book, a letter to them, and it's called Ephesians. Another time, he'll go to Philippi, and he'll write a letter to them. It's called Philippians. He'll go to Corinth. He'll write uh, some letters, probably four letters to him, and it's called Corinthians. But he also writes this letter called Galatians. There's not a town Galatia. This is the region. So when you read, and next week we'll look at this a bit. When you read the, the letter to Galatian, the Galatians, it's these four churches. It's Antioch, it's Iconium, it's Lystra, and it's Derby. He's writing that letter to them. So he gets here, and it'd be a lot quicker to go back home this way. But there's all these new believers in Jesus. So they backtrack back out, go into all the towns that they've presented the gospel. And two things they do in every town. They encourage the believers. They teach them. They train them. They encourage them. And then they appoint elders in every one of these cities to lead the church so that they're not out there floundering on their own. They end up back in Perga. They preach with great, uh, with great success there. They go to Italia. And then they sail back to Antioch. There is our journey, Acts chapters 13 and 14. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. No, no. I, I, read it on your own. I've left out a few details. I know it's hard to believe, but I have. But what I want to do for a few minutes is point out some significant things that happen in this journey. One of them I've already alluded to that happened on the island uh, there of Cyprus when they're down here. It says in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit and goes on. 
at this point, in Luke's uh, writing of the book of Acts, from here on, he doesn't refer to him as Saul anymore. From here on, he refers to him as Paul. Now, he didn't change his name. Paul was the Greco-Roman name that he has. Uh, here's a kind of a weak example. If I was moving to South America to be a missionary, I would probably go by the name Roberto rather than Bob. I'm not changing my name, but it's a different, it's, a, it's more the, the Spanish version of my name. He goes by, by Paul, which is his Greco-Roman name. Remember, when he was converted, when he was blind, when God spoke to Ananias, he said this to Ananias, Go, this man, Saul at that point, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I have hand-selected him, I have chosen him for a very specific purpose, for a very specific target audience, primarily the Gentiles. And I think what happens here is as Paul starts out on his first missionary journey, he begins to identify with his calling. He, he begins to recognize that my name uh, yeah, I'm Saul and I'm Jewish, but for the sake of these Gentiles, I'm going to go by Paul because there will be a connection. They can relate to that. There, if it builds a bridge, that will help. And it's just this, he's just committed to what God has called him to. And if you know Saul's background, the fact that God would choose him for the Gentiles is like the most, mm, the craziest thing that could have ever happened. Something else happens at that point as well. Remember I talked about the order of names, the order of lists, and the order of prominence. Something happens when they leave this island. It says this, from Paphos, Paul and his companions, not Barnabas and Paul. It's not even Paul and Barnabas. It's Paul and his companions. Now, wait a second. Up to this point, Barnabas has been the leader. He's been the guy. But now it's Paul and his companions they sailed to Perga in Pamphylia where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Some feel like it's because there was this shift in leadership, shift in authority, that John Mark says, no, no, I'm here for Uncle Barney. I'm, I'm going home. But then you see it over and over again as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue. The devouts, they followed Paul and Barnabas. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas. You see this over and over again. And I think what happens here is that as Paul begins to embrace his calling, as Paul begins to develop his gifts as a communicator, as Paul begins to be used by God, there's just this obvious, you know what, Paul? You need to, you need to take the lead here. Barnabas, Barnabas is a pastor. He's a shepherd. He's an encourager. Paul, he's an apostle. He's the, the preacher. In fact, when, when they were in, in uh, Lystra and they said, Barnabas is Zeus, and Paul is Hermes. You know why they said Paul is Hermes? Because Hermes was the herald for the gods, and Paul was one that was always speaking. He's this apostle. He's this evangelist. He's this preacher. He's a theologian. He's a leader. And so he takes this, this seat of prominence, not as a power trip, but just there's this shift that's going on. And you know what I believe? Is that all along, the one who's most excited and cheering about this is Barnabas. It's like, yes. I don't need that number one seat. Go, Paul. Look at you go. It's so cool what God is doing. This is what he's called you for. This is what you were created for. And Barnabas just encourages him. Oh, that we could be more like Barnabas in our world. Just encourage one another. Push one another forward. Keep, keep going. And Paul gives this sermon, the one that's recorded there in, um, 
in Antioch. And again, he goes through their history. It's in the synagogue, but he's always pointing to Jesus. But I want to take two verses out of that sermon that are such a foundation for what Paul will preach the rest of his life. Therefore, my brothers, he says, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. It's all about Jesus. Through Jesus. Through him. And he points out very clearly, there are two blessings that Jesus brings to us that the law never could. Forgiveness and justification. The law is really good to show us how we're guilty, to make us feel guilty. The law can never forgive us. The law can condemn us because of what we do and when we break the law, but the law can never justify us. But through Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. Through Jesus, we are justified. And those are blessings that the law could never do. And the message from Paul, remember Paul, he loved the, the law of God. He memorized the law of God. He followed the law of God. He was a law guy. But his message was this, that Jesus is greater than the law, far greater than the law. And you see this over and over in his letters. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll look at Galatians a little bit. The whole book about Galatians is like, don't be enslaved to the law when you've got freedom in Christ. He's forgiven you. He's justified you. In Ephesians, he says, you know, it's by grace you are saved. Not, it's not keeping the law. In Philippians, he said, I, I'd, rather have a, I'd rather have a righteousness that comes by my faith in Christ rather than me trying to keep the law. I did that my whole life, and it's garbage compared to knowing Christ Jesus. And, 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 and all that, I, I, consider, I consider it loss. In Colossians, he says, the law the law stood against me, but Christ nailed it to the cross. I mean, it's just his message over and over and over again. Jesus is greater than the law. And never does he more expound on that than in Romans chapter 3. And for just a few minutes, and I mean less than a few minutes, I just saw the clock. This is getting to be like the demolition derby. All right. There, see, there's only two laughs in here. Everyone else is asleep. I hope online you guys aren't watching a game or something. Okay. Therefore... No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of sin. The law is really good at pointing out where we messed up, how we failed, how we don't measure up, how we can't keep it. Then this word, but, but. What a great transitional word. But, wait, 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 you mean there might be some good news here? But now... A righteousness, a right standing with God. Now a righteousness from God, not from the law, not from my efforts, from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This is what he did in every synagogue. You know the law. You know the prophets. All of them were pointing to this. That's why Jesus would come along and he would say, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. All of that was pointing to Jesus. And then he reiterates it again in verse 22. He says, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's the good news. The right standing is from God through faith in Jesus to all, to all who will believe. Not to just the Jewish people, 
But to the Greeks and to the Romans and to the Gentiles and to those from Whatcom County and the Skagit County and the United States, to all who believe, it's from God through faith, not works, in Jesus to all. Because here's the difference. We're all the same. There's always been a difference. Us and them, remember? Law keepers and clean and unclean. No, no, there's no difference. <laughs> Basically says, we're all a mess. Every single one of us. We've all sinned. And you can, it's, it's implied here. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, that's the bad news. All of us have sinned. Uh, not new news to any of us, but it's bad news. And we've all fallen short. And, and, and here's where it gets good. And we are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's the message he preached. That's the message that changed lives. That's the message that we preach today. That's the message that's still changing lives. It's a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus to all. If this was open, this was accessible, this was available to everyone, to everyone. It, it was an open house. It wasn't just for the Jews. It wasn't just for the law abiders. It was for everyone. In Romans uh, 1, Paul says this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. Blessed in order to be a blessing. In a covenant, in order to be a light to the Gentiles. Us for them. It's what God's way has always been. So, so when he preaches that sermon, um, he quotes Isaiah 49. It says, this is what the Lord has commanded us. And then he quotes Isaiah 49. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends, ends of the earth. And what you see here is that God just swings the door open. That God says, it's not just an open house. God swings this door open. In fact, he says, uh, got a little something else I need to put out here. But this welcome mat for all of you who would believe. Door not even shut anymore. It's not a restricted area. It's not a keep out. It's not just an open house. It's your house. It's our house. In the house of God in his grace. So two or three years, Paul and Barnabas are on this journey. And they sail back, probably tired, filled with incredible stories, scars, memories. They come back to Antioch, and this is what it says. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. The grace of God. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported. They'd been gone for two or three years now. They reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. He said, guys, God has opened this door. It's amazing what he's doing all throughout. And it will continue on. Can I circle back to this one verse? The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. In our lives, my prayer is this, that our love and our worship of Jesus would be deeper and richer than ever before because of that truth.
that our grace and our invitation to a world that is hurting and desperately needs grace would be an open door with a welcome mat and that we would recognize that this journey that these guys went on, the journey that we are on, is all about the grace of God. And it's been his plan all along. And to live in that goodness and grace that arises from God through faith in Christ for all is available.